0: everybody back into down the line as always i'm your host carson brebber and today we get to reflect on a pretty interesting week of tennis that we just saw at the olympics certainly not a standard week the olympics and tennis are always strange because now you don't even get any points there were a lot of stars absent on both the men's and the women's side but we ended up having a pretty fascinating last couple matches on the men's side and not necessarily involving the winner. Although Alexander Zverev did play some phenomenal tennis and we'll give him his just due today, I think that certainly the most interesting part of this Olympic tournament was what happened with Novak Djokovic. Just the fact that he lost to begin with, but also the manner in which he lost. Because at this point, it's just not his style to lose unspectacularly. So. First off, obviously, he lost in the semi. He ended up losing in the bronze medal match as well to Pablo Carreño Busta, who at this point seems to have his number in a very, very strange way. And that loss has attracted a bunch of attention because of Djokovic's conduct on court. But personally, I think the more interesting loss was in the semi-final to Alexander Zverev. And if you look back on this match, as far as the score would tell you, it looks like Djokovic was cruising in that first set. He takes it 6-1. But it was a pretty hard fought 6-1, 37 minutes, and Zverev was really never playing badly. I just thought Djokovic played some phenomenal tennis, he was serving beautifully, working the serve out wide, the forehand on the deuce side, just opening up the court, hitting winners from the ground, defending well, played just a phenomenal game to break at 2-1 in that first set, just all around seemed to have it. But Zverev wasn't out of sorts, maybe he could have been a little steadier from the ground, but The indications were that maybe he was going to put up more of a fight than the scoreboard would actually indicate. Although, I have to say, when Djokovic is cruising like he had been throughout this tournament, like he has been throughout the better part of this year, that thought doesn't always cross your mind. And it was certainly shocking to see Zverev then have the surge that he did in the second set, because even though, again, he had played a fine first set, when Novak Djokovic takes a set and a break lead, the match is over. Novak was 30 and 0 on matches in which he had won the first set this year. Heading into that one, he's won 96% of such matches in his career, and that is just ramped up another level if he goes up another break in that second set as well. So, I thought that that was shocking, but. You got to give a ton of props to Zverev because, first of all, I thought stylistically he made an adjustment that is just refreshing to see because always with him, he is this incredible physical specimen who has all these tools at 6'6", six, six, he's mobile, but he can bomb the serve, he's got the steady backhand, he can hit these big forehands, and yet oftentimes you find him playing more passively like a junior hanging out six feet behind the baseline and just grinding out these wins and yeah he can do it against lesser opponents but he can't do it against Djokovic he can't do it against the big three really and he actually acknowledged that in a quote he said basically that he needed to go into that first strike tennis mindset that he can't just try to grind out wins against Novak on a hard court and he's completely correct and I love seeing that adjustment because he ramped up the aggression he was hitting some big forehand approaches he started really finishing points at the net and he lost a couple of those in the the first set, but he was really, really steady in the second and third and had a ton of chances closing points with volleys and overheads and just played some of his best tennis overall. And I think also the part of this that is equally impressive is just that he had the mental wherewithal to stick around in this one, because obviously with Zverev, it's always about how much of a head case he is, I think that's even interrelated with his passivity as a player, compared to what he could do with his skill set, it's all about what's going on up in his noggin, and first of all, he rallies from a set and a breakdown, but then also, in that second set, he goes down love 30 when he's serving for it at 5-3, finds a way to close out that game, and... Just served very well, which is obviously such a huge question mark for him normally. That second serve had one double fault over the semifinal and the final. That is remarkable. And yeah, Djokovic's level probably slipped a little bit as this one went on. I thought in the third set, the timing seemed to be a bit off on his forehand. There were a few mishits that are somewhat uncharacteristic from him, and he had his chances in that second game of the third set where he was broken to start things off, but then had several break points and... Just had a couple chances at the net, ends up hitting pretty poor volleys, and Zverev played some phenomenal defense and was able to pass him. And I will say that whatever volleying points Novak earned in that Wimbledon final, where I thought he had some of his best points at the net of his career, was just really impressive there throughout. I think that he's lost them. He was not good at the net here, as you would kind of expect, and he was punished for not being able to close there down the stretch in this one, and he just really wasn't able to be the aggressor whatsoever. Zverev dictated this match that doesn't normally happen, and so I think that that's really interesting from a tennis perspective. And mentally, yeah, it's shocking to see Djokovic lose that lead, but I do think it was more about the guy opposite him, where things get really, 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 really weird, as if him losing a match in which he was upset and a break to a massive head case in Zverev who you can never bet on to do anything when things get tough. As if that wasn't weird enough. Then he loses to Carreño Busta. And the thing that comes to everybody's mind with this match is the outburst that he had. The clip that has circulated the most is him smashing his racket... But he also threw his racket into the stands earlier on, which I find to be more alarming. I've never seen that. And yes, circumstances are obviously very different because there are no fans in the stands, or at least not in the section that he threw the racket into. And obviously, (laughs) if there are fans in the stands, you cannot possibly do that. That was still, to me, though, probably the more jarring of the two moments. But I just don't think that this is all that big of a deal. Like, yeah, Djokovic lost his cool. This is something that happens with him. He fluctuates between being the Zen master and the biggest hothead in the sport. Like, that's part of the wildness of his journey. You never know exactly what you're going to get. Just when everybody's saying, oh, he's playing the best tennis of his life, what does he do? He goes out there, cruises for a few matches, and then he has a couple of really ugly losses. 2015, in the first half of 2016, he was playing the best tennis of his life. All of a sudden, he has this massive collapse. Next thing you know, he comes back in dramatic fashion. 2018 Wimbledon, boom, he's the best tennis player in the world again. Like, that's obviously partly physical as well with that variability. But mentally, I don't think that you can ever go into a match and say, okay, Novak Djokovic is not going to lose his stuff a little bit if he's not playing his best tennis. And so, yeah, it's an international stage. And I think that there were a lot of non-tennis fans' eyeballs that were attached to this, which I think is probably part of the reason that it has drummed up so much attention. But I just don't care all that much. And like, clearly it's about him being a megastar and he therefore attracts more attention. In his match against Zverev, Zverev smashed a racket. He hit a ball into the stands. Nobody's talking about it, of course. And part of this is just the lens through which people choose to perceive Djokovic. Zverev literally got accused of domestic violence and got probably a 20th of the negative press that Djokovic does for starting a union to help players earn better wages. That's negative press. Or accidentally hitting a Lions person with a ball or doing something like this where he smashes his racket. Like, clearly, there is something distorted with people's values in this respect, and that's not to say that he conducted himself like some pro. I've said this before, I just really don't care about players getting upset. Like, yeah... You're a role model. That's what Rafa said. He finds it strange that Djokovic still gets so upset with all the accomplishments he's had. I don't, though. I understand it. I understand just having that insane competitive edge and sometimes just needing to explode. That's fine by me. He's human. I think it makes him interesting. Again, not ideal, but he has these moments. What I will say is notable, and part of the reason maybe that you could say this is why he had this outburst in this situation beyond just the result, because. It was weird that he lost to PCB. PCB is playing really good tennis right now. I mean, he just won the title in Hamburg and obviously gets a bronze medal here, beat Medvedev earlier in the tournament, like props to him, but there's no reason for him to beat Djokovic. Although I didn't think Djokovic necessarily played atrocious tennis and I did think Carreño Busta played well. So it's a weird loss in that respect and certainly a frustrating one. But what I think is just the compounding factor here is that there is no event where Djokovic has accumulated more of a desire to succeed than the Olympics. He has won every Masters 1,000 twice. He has won every Major twice. These are things that nobody else has done. Like, the dude is just a machine, and when he's at his best, he just is not denied. And the Olympics is the exception to that. Like, he doesn't even have a silver. He hasn't been to the finals. And Olympics and tennis are super weird. Roger Federer does not have a gold medal in singles either. Andy Murray has two. He has more than the big three combined. It's a very unique tournament in that respect. But for a man who is so proud of his national identity, he's incredibly proud to be a Serbian. And I think of that Davis Cup win in 2010 remains one of the defining moments of his career. And for a guy who is so fixated on just dominance and being the best version of himself and having every accomplishment that there is, that's heartbreaking. When you only have a chance at something every four years and you just can't get it done, I understand why this was the circumstance in which we saw the first outburst of this level from him in a while and then ends up withdrawing from mixed doubles as well. I think that that is certainly disappointing for his partner. He says that there's a shoulder injury involved there. I'm not inclined to say that that's not true. Hopefully, it's nothing of significance, but certainly just a bummer all around in that respect. But I will say, if anybody's looking at this and thinking, okay, is Djokovic crazy vulnerable now? Is his body melting down? Is his mind melting down? I just don't think so. He's been somewhat vulnerable in best of three all year. He's 17-5 and five there. And this is why, when all of those people go out there and say, oh, this is the best Djokovic has ever been, I just don't fully agree because... I just think that there's more inconsistency from him in the smaller tournaments, in the non-best-of-five format, and what I've said is, he now has this level of invincibility in best-of-five because of mental and physical toughness that is just on a different level from probably even his season in 2011 or 2015, but that is not necessarily the case when it comes to best-of-three, and there's just a little bit more randomness, so we're not going to see him for a minute. He's not playing Toronto. That's not because of the shoulder injury. He had announced that before, understandably, just because of the collective fatigue of the grind, of the quick turnaround from the French to Wimbledon, and then right into the Olympics. That's a lot of tennis. And so we'll see what happens here. We're less than a month out from the U.S. Open. Obviously, so much on the line for him. Like, it would be shocking if he didn't finish at world number one at this point. Really shocking considering he has three slam titles to his name and has like a 3,000-point lead in the race to Turin. I'm not saying that's going to happen, But obviously, the opportunity to achieve the calendar year Grand Slam, there is no greater pressure. And that reminds me of another thing that was frustrating to me from this past week. And I think that this has been harped on already by some people, but just the incredibly pathetic journalism of people who reported that Djokovic's quotes about pressure and how you live for the pressure and you need to be able to handle it and all that, multiple journalistic outlets attributed that to being some sort of critique of Simone Biles. I just read something that was published two days ago, long after he actually made the quote that said, when asked about Simone Biles, he said this, how ironic, because he had this meltdown a couple days later. Just do some basic homework. He was asked about the pressure that he was dealing with having the opportunity to achieve the counter-year Grand Slam. It's that simple. I don't think it was a controversial comment at all. It was not about Simone Biles. I doubt he had that in his mind whatsoever. And so that is just reckless and very disappointing to see. And again, it just fits the narrative that is constantly developed about Djokovic. I just saw an article from another outlet just analyzing, is he a jerk? And breaking down the evidence for and against. Of course, this is not by a tennis journalist. It's just incredible how distinct the coverage of him is and he certainly doesn't help himself when he has outbursts like that but I don't think it's going to matter all that much in the long run although we'll see again even though I think he's the greatest tennis player ever it's always something of a roller coaster and there's probably never been a bigger stage in his career than what's coming in New York the career Golden Slam would have been incredible but the Olympics in tennis they just don't matter all that much as I've said there are all-time greats who don't have that title to their name And this was clearly a very weird tournament. Like, you look at some of the stuff that happens, Shardy makes the quarterfinals out of nowhere. What the hell? Nishikori had a run of the quarterfinals. That was fun, and he has been playing well. He's 19-14 and on the year. Six of his last eight losses have been to top six players, so just a tough draw. Had Zverev a few times in a row. And I really enjoyed seeing him do it in front of, of course, the hometown fans as well. But... It's just part of the weirdness of the Olympics and having a draw that's without some of those star guys and it's sandwiched into the middle of such a packed season. So there was some weirdness there, but I don't want to try to discredit what Zverev did here because he played great tennis and good for him because after that incredible rally against Djokovic, he just destroyed Kachanov and had that same mentality, confident, attacking tennis, trusting his serve. Trusting his forehand, I just thought that was great to see from him, and now he is at the point where he's basically won everything there is to win except for a slam. He's got the year-end finals, he's got a Masters 1000, I mean obviously he can win plenty more of those. He's got the Olympics, and he had his chance at a slam, obviously US Open last year, up two sets to love, and he just could not close the job because he is something of a head case. So there you have it, there are my Olympic takeaways on the men's side. The Olympics might just be a little bit too weird for me in tennis, honestly. I like having them. It's tough for me to get really engaged, though. I honestly just enjoy the sports that, to me, are Olympic sports. It's like, I'm a huge basketball fan. I don't really love Olympic basketball all that much. Like, to me, if it doesn't feel like the biggest stage in the sport, it's just not the same. And obviously, it's not even close to the biggest stage in the sport in tennis. But really nice tournament from Zverev. Props to him. We'll see if he can keep that momentum going into the U.S. hardcourt swing. Other than that, on the women's side, just a really weird tournament. Like, if the Olympics were too weird for me on the men's side, ramp that up another level on the women's. Bardi, Osaka, Sabalenka, and Sviatek all were out by the third round, and that's with Kenan, Hollop, Andrescu, and Serena all All already not there so it's just kind of like what are we really doing here again tough to get invested and this is something I've harped on again and again with the women over the last plus year but it's just like you need to have your stars reliably healthy and I do wonder and this is not an Olympic specific thought But I wonder if women's tennis right now would be served better by having a best of five format in the slams. And maybe I'm just being a prisoner of the moment because I want that more reliable dominant star. And I think it's more about health than it is the great players actually being there and collapsing. I'm just trying to think about ways that there can be more stability at the top of the sport and clearly best of five does that in a good way to me not in a boring way in like hey you're gonna see the best players play their best tennis you're gonna have reliable stars who you can count on to be there for the most part I think that's fun and I think that that's clearly what women's tennis needs right now was not there at the Olympics good for Bencic who ends up winning it she had a lot of quality wins from the first round on beat Pagula. Krejcikova, Pavlyunchenkova, Rybakina, Vondrusova. She won four straight three-setters to close it out. Like, that's a really impressive tournament for her, and it's good timing because she's had a very meh year. She lost third round at the Australian, second round at the French, first round at Wimbledon, entered the Olympics just 17 and 14 on the year, and so it's really nice for her to have that under her belt. I'm sure that there's great pride in doing that for your country as well. Phenomenal accomplishment. But at the end of the day, she didn't have to beat a top 10 player to win a tournament for which she gets no points. And like, I'm not trying to be a cynic. I just feel like I'm kind of being realistic about this. It's tough for me to look at that and say, wow, look at what Benchich did. That's incredible. That's earth shattering stuff. Even for Zverev, you know, I give him his props because he played great tennis and maybe the margin was a little bit more convincing, but he really had two good wins. The path up to the semis was not very difficult. Partly, I guess, just because you have guys split between the tour and the Olympics and then you have guys who just pass up because there are some super weird names in this draw I don't know if part of it is about what nationalities have to be represented still a great accomplishment for both of them other than that on the women's side I enjoyed the runs to the semis from Rybakina and Vondrusova a couple of 22 year olds I love Rybakina, huge fan of her game. I think she's a fun, attacking, very talented player. But that's not wildly unexpected stuff. is the other semi I'm sort of eh on Svitolina. I don't think she's all that exciting. I don't think she's really a top-five caliber player in a world where women's tennis is at its best. Although she's certainly had some great results over the years. So all around, the Olympics are weird. That's my takeaway. Okay, let's look elsewhere in the sport here because... Last I spoke to you all was right after Wimbledon, so a lot has happened since then. Not necessarily anything major outside of the Olympics, but some pretty interesting fun stuff on the side, particularly involving some of the young men. First off, we gotta give shout out to Brandon Nakashima for pulling off a little bit of magic. He turns 20 Today, so happy birthday, Brandon. If you are a longtime listener of the show, you'll remember how long I've been on the Nakashima train ever since he broke through at 18 at Delray Beach. It was his first career tournament, and he won a couple of matches. I was on board from the moment that that happened, partly because, yes, he's an American who could win a couple matches, but obviously that's a demonstration of impressive talent, and since then, he has adopted friend of the show, Dusan Vemich, as his coach, I interviewed Dushan once a while back. You can go ahead and listen to that in the archives if you want to. He's a super nice, really interesting guy. So those are some plus points for Nakashima. But the reason he is relevant right now is because we saw him make back-to-back finals at a couple of smaller hardcourt tournaments in Los Cabos and then in Atlanta. Wasn't able to win either one. Ends up falling to Cam Nori and John Isner, but had some good wins along the way and now is up to world number 89. So that's pretty darn impressive from him. And I gotta say, right now, he feels a good bit better to me than he did at Delray Beach. And that's what's so fun about watching all of these young guys is you just get to see them grow into themselves. Like Carlos Alcaraz, who we will give a little bit of props to in a minute. That dude has just gotten so much more powerful. And he's younger than Nakashima, so maybe it's been more pronounced. But... Nakashima to me feels bigger, he feels stronger, he's listed at 6'1", 185, I know that at UVA he was listed at 6 foot, I don't know if he's actually grown since then, if he has that's cool, but he definitely looks, again, bigger, stronger, I like his serve a little bit more right now, I feel like he can hit it a bit bigger, he's also got a nice kick out to the backhand, which is always a good thing to have in your arsenal, high percentage, it's not like he's bombing these things 130, but he's got a solid enough serve, And obviously, the most exciting part about his game is the backhand, which just should be one of the best on tour. I mean, he can whip that thing, but showed some really nice stylistic variety, handles big servers well. Over those two tournaments, some of his best wins came against those big serve, big forehand players, beat Isner once, beat Sam Querrey, beat Raonic, but also has a really nice net game, great hands up there, just a good volleyer all around, and so that helps him attack a little bit more. I don't know that that'll ever be his primary weapon. I think he's a guy who can play defense at a high level, but because of the backhand, he can attack from the baseline as well, and he's mentally tough, and this is something that I've always been so impressed about for him at his age, He's down a set to roundage, comes back and wins, down a set to Roussevore, comes back and wins, 5-0 and in three setters overall across these two tournaments against Isner, saved four match points, ends up unfortunately ending it with a double fault off the top of the net, which is a painful way to go, but before that, had played some really clutch tennis, like, the dude just steps up to the moment, he is not scared, and I don't think that he has some crazy high ceiling, like, I don't think that he's going to be a top five player in the world because although I love the backhand I don't know that he has that one super distinctive weapon but I do think he'll be a top 20 guy and he's growing into his game and he's clearly improving and look not everybody can win a title in their first couple goes at it all right ask Felix seem about that but to get there in back-to-back tournaments even if the draws are somewhat depleted whatever I don't care because he actually had some really good wins he's not dealing with super easy draws here over in the states unlike some other people who were making some runs, <clears throat> Kasper Rude, who we will talk about in a little bit, but like beating Querrey, Jordan Thompson, Isner, losing to Nori, beating Raunich, again, Jordan Thompson, Roussevori, like those are all very legitimate at the very least top 100 guys, some of them a good bit better than that. So props to Nakashima. I'm very excited to see this progress from him and hope that it continues into the U.S. hardcourt swing. He's got a wild card into Washington, which started today, so hopefully he can take advantage of that. I will briefly give a shout-out to another young American, Jensen Brooksby. His run was a little bit longer ago because it was in that week right after Wimbledon at Newport. He ends up making it to the final. Much easier draw than when Nakashima went through, and he lost to Kevin Anderson. He's also 20 years old. He's 130 in the world now not all that high on Jensen Brooksby long term, if I'm being honest. But it's always fun to see a guy come out of nowhere and make a run, especially a young American. And he's a tricky, crafty little player. He loves to throw in the slices and he can flatten out a really big forehand every once in a while on the run. And he certainly plays hard. And He's a guy who knows how to win, probably just more on the Challenger Tour, in my opinion. Not all that excited about him, but you got to shout out the Young Americans, especially a fellow from Northern California like myself. He's from Sacramento, not the greatest part of Northern California, if you ask me, but he is a brother nonetheless, and shout out Jensen, because that was good stuff to see. Now, the other young guy who really deserves a shout out right now is Alcaraz. He won his first career title in UMOG, I don't really know what to say except this kid is just so good. He has gotten so good, so fast compared to what he was when he first came onto the scene at 16 years old and beat Ramos Vinolas, which, by the way, he did again en route to this title. I just feel like beating Ramos Vinolas at this point is a rite of passage for some of these young guys. As I've said before, Alcaraz is now 54 in the world. At 18 years and 3 months old, he's basically the same age that Rafa was when he won his first title, and the Rafa comparisons, eh, not a huge fan. Alcaraz is not going to be Rafa, they don't play similar stylistically, they don't even play with the same hand, obviously, it's just a couple of young Spaniards, but I really, really like Alcaraz, I fully believe he's going to be a top 5 player in the world, could be a world number 1, again, the power is just constantly developing from that forehand side, He's gotten bigger, he's gotten stronger, but he's also such a great mover. He can play defense. Just a beautiful, beautiful, smooth, fluid game. I love the kid. Good volleyer as well. Just super high on him all around. I've said all this before, but him cementing it with a title to me really matters. You break through there. You earn yourself some points, you earn yourself some confidence, you get yourself on the map of even more people as a legitimate threat, and I cannot wait to see what he does in the hardcourt swing here, because he wins his first title on clay. I don't know if clay is his best surface long term, I think it's probably where he's most comfortable right now, but I think he should be equally as strong on hard, just given the variety that exists in his game, and the tools that he has there, so props to him. One more favorite of the show to shout out here, and that is Casper Rudd. And look, maybe I bagged on the path that it's taken him, but this guy just won three titles in three weeks. And sure, he beat one top 50 player to do it, and it happened to be Benoit Paire, who has actively tried to lose basically every match for last year, although not in this tournament. He was actually trying, so I guess that counts for something. But it's not the most convincing three titles. Still, though, he's 35-9 and on the year now. He's number eight in the race to Turin. He's world number 12 right now. Like, this is remarkable. And again, if you're a longtime listener of the show, you'll remember before 2020, I said, Ruud is the guy to watch. I think he'll have a rise into the top 20 this year. And now he has gone even beyond that. Now, I don't think he's a top 10 caliber player in the world. He doesn't have that one crazy distinctive weapon, but on clay, certainly. I would like to see him do more outside of clay though. He's 28 and 5 on clay this year. 28 and 5, that is unfathomable, but he's 2 and 2 on grass, he's 5 and 2 on hard, and he just racks up a lot of wins in the 250s right now. I'm not saying he can't beat the top guys on clay, but I want to see him do it in the slams, I want to see him do it again on hard, and I think he can do that. Grass is going to be a different challenge, but you know what, if you're going to struggle on one surface, Grass is the best one, so I'm very excited to see how he progresses from here, but you know what, man, no matter what, winning three titles in three weeks is no joke. Even if you're the significant favorite in every one of those matches, it's tough to not slip up, and he deserves credit for that, and for taking advantage of the opportunity in the schedule Would have been cool to see him in the Olympics, I guess, but you know what? He'll take his points and moved up a couple ranking spots while other people were resting or playing in Tokyo, so props to him for that, and I'm a big fan of his game, and I'm excited to see, again, how he finishes this year. So with that, we are now into the American hardcourt swing. Washington started today. That's Monday for me at the time of this recording. Rafa should totally win there. Felix is the number two seed Lord knows that even if Felix gets to the final he won't be able to win and for those of you who don't know Felix is 0-7 in finals in his career that's why I've taken two digs at him in that respect in this podcast even though I love the guy but it'll be good to see how Rafa plays in his return coming back from some time off and that foot injury personally I would expect him to be pretty sharp so some other good players to watch for there as well Diminar is the three-seed. Sinner is going to be there. Kyrgios is going to be there. Like, it's totally a solid draw, but Rafa should clearly be the overwhelming favorite. We have the women playing in San Jose 2 right now. That's not a great draw. Not as good as Washington, even. Uh, Mertens is the top seed. I believe Rybakina is the two-seed. No top ten players there, which is a bit unfortunate because that's a tournament that used to get a really great draw. Like I remember one time I went and watched the final with my dad and it was Serena versus Kerber. Serena used to always play that tournament. And I should clarify, it's not technically the same event because it used to be held at Stanford. It was the Bank of the West Classic, but it is the replacement tournament. It's within you know a half hour of the old location. It's the same stakes and all that, but just not as good of a draw this year. And again, a lot of these great women players are dealing with injury stuff they're recovering so maybe this isn't just going to be the most exciting week overall but we have a lot to look forward to in the U.S. Open swing as a whole without a question on the men's side so many different storylines what does Fed do Can he make a push? Can he consistently play high-level tennis? We still haven't seen a crazy impressive result from him. I mean, did perfectly fine at the French and at Wimbledon, but does he have that extra gear? I don't know. I'm not so convinced, but I also wouldn't rule it out. The man is a god. Outside of that, is Dominic team able to return from his wrist injury to defend his title? I saw something today that said that we should not be optimistic, and if he's not able to return things are getting rough for him, man. I mean, he has the 40th most points already in this calendar year and losing out on the opportunity to defend 2,000 of them at the tournament where he had his career result last year. That would not bode all that well for him, but something to watch, certainly. You got to look at what Rafa does. I mean, the U.S. Open has been a home base for him throughout his career. He's won it four times and I'll be interested in seeing what kind of push he does make because clearly hasn't been... All that determined to play every single possible match this year. Missed Wimbledon, missed the Olympics, and part of that is due to injuries certainly as well. But he's got a lot of ground to make up. He's 4,000 points behind Novak in the rankings right now. He's world number three. He's over 4,000 behind in the race to Turin. He's much closer to Sitsipas in the world rankings than he is to Djokovic. Like I think he has 200 points on Sitsipas right now, so interested in seeing what kind of form he finds if he can play spoiler, and then you look to some of the other exciting young guys, the Canadians, after they did so well at Wimbledon, how do they follow that up? Poss having such a career year, Rublev, just personal favorite, Medvedev, can he get back to the final where he was in 2019? All of that is really interesting, but of course, the story of all stories is going to be Djokovic, and if he can pull it off, maybe made more interesting by the fact that He had this really tough go at the Olympics. We won't see him in Toronto. I would imagine that we see him in Cincinnati, though, and I suppose how he performs there will have something of a bearing on expectations going into the U.S. Open, but I would just be very surprised if he's not the overwhelming favorite. To me, again, the only guy who can reasonably stop him is Rafa if he is something like himself. If he has a 2017-esque collapse, that dynamic changes entirely. I'm not expecting it though. I'm really not all that concerned again in spite of the weirdness and I expect him to come back strong and in best of five he's just that much tougher to beat. On the women's side gotta look to the return of Naomi Osaka now that she is hopefully back for good after taking that time off for just some mental health relief and getting a break and gearing up to play in the Olympics where unfortunately she didn't do all that well but Hopefully she gets into form, has a chance to defend that U.S. Open title. I would love to see her back out there. I think she's far and away the most exciting player in the sport, the best player in the sport when she's at her best. Can't wait to see that. And other than that, just hope all the other stars are out there healthy. Hope Coco Gauff is able to maybe make a little bit of a noise at obviously her nation's Grand Slam. She also wasn't able to play in the Olympics due to COVID. It's just like so many blows to the stars of women's tennis. But I will continue to hold out hope. That it can only get better from here. And that's what I'm going to put my money on here in the U.S. Open Swing. So, tons of good tennis to look forward to as always. And I don't want to undersell what we have going this week. I mean, it's a couple of fun tournaments overall. 500 points at stake in both Washington and San Jose. So, turn the TVs on. There's good players playing in both of them. Maybe not earth-shattering stuff, but good tennis nonetheless. Just like what we saw in the Olympics. And just like what is yet to come. So, with that, hope you've enjoyed this one, guys. As always, I've been Carson Braber, and this was Down the Line.